you want to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at Jonah, mainly chapter 2 today. We're going to grab that last part of Jonah chapter 1. Oh, yes, and if you are in the herd, um, so children 4 through 2nd grade, you can head on back there with Ms. Amanda Lundeen. She's going to be heading up our herd. So if you're a child age 4 through 2nd grade, you can go ahead and head out. Thank you, Mr. Klein-Schmidt. Appreciate that. This morning we're going to be concentrating on Jonah chapter 2. And like I said, we're going to grab that last part of chapter 1, verse 17, and work our way through the end of Jonah chapter 2, verse verse 10. As Charles said, we're in the middle of a series. The series is called Toward the City. We're looking at what it means to be toward the city. We're seeing that God is a God on mission, exactly what Charles was talking about. God is a God that has saved us from his wrath, saved us from sin. But when salvation came to you and me, it wasn't just merely we were being saved from his wrath, saved from the sin that condemns us, but we were saved to something. We are saved to join God on mission, taking the gospel, the good news, to the people that don't know this good news. It's to see that this period of history that we find ourselves in, this period of redemption where God is saving and redeeming people, we find ourselves in the midst of this season, this, history, this period of history. And so what God is doing is calling us to image him, to mirror him to the nations, to the world, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to our city, joining him in this mission, living out the truth of what has been applied to our hearts, the truth that we once were not a people, but now we are a people. We once were far from God, but now we've been drawn near, all because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we've been working through the book of Jonah, we've looked at the first three verses. We saw a prophet and his call. We saw that Jonah received a call. Jonah was called to go to the city of Nineveh. He was called to arise. Go, call out the city of Nineveh. The evil of that city had arisen to God. God raised up his prophet and said, Jonah, you are the time, you are the man in this time, in this place. It is your job to go and preach a message of judgment to these people. And that prophet, when he received his call, we expected that he would stand up and go. But what happened? He stood up all right, but he fled in the opposite direction. So we folded up last week by looking at verses 4 through 16. And not only did we see a prophet in his call, but we saw a prophet in his flight. And the narrator of the book of Jonah really stretches out for us what Jonah, the links that Jonah went through to flee the call that God had placed on his life. The book starts out with a very sharp tension. God exercising his sovereignty on his prophet, saying, You are the man. Arise, go, call out, preach a message of judgment so that these people would repent, and that my wrath would be stayed. But Jonah goes to great lengths to flee God's call. And so when we get to verse 17 here, at the end of chapter 1, and we're going to read through Jonah chapter 2, we're now going to see a prophet and his prayer. See, we've been looking at the goal of Jonah to see that there is value to the soul. So when we interact and we engage with our neighbors, with our family members, when we get together at holidays, 
when we brush life upon life and just the daily comings and goings, the daily ebb and flow of life, it is somehow easy for us, easy for me, to not look at my neighbor and my coworker or someone who has an eternal soul. Somehow I, I slip into that mode where it's just like, man, this is the guy that's making my life miserable. This is the boss that just keeps pressing and tightening the screw on me. This is the barista who for the millionth time can't serve me the coffee the way I've asked her to serve it to me. And we let our preferences and the things we want and the things we like somehow taint the way we see the world to the point where it's no longer, this is a person who needs to be redeemed and restored to be saved They have an eternal soul too. This is the person that acts. And as we look at the book of Jonah, the goal is to be able to see that this big overarching umbrella from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 4 is this. Jonah, you were to rise, you were to go, you were to call because I care for that great city of Nineveh. And so if this big overarching theme through the book of Jonah is how we came to the title of the series, Towards the City. God has a love for the city, and it's stamped all over the scriptures. And what God is calling me and what God is calling you to do is to realize that, recognize that, look at that, and for us to join God on mission, step into that mission, going, I'm going to be an agent bringing redemption to people, resting on the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. So we saw a prophet in his call, a prophet in his flight, and today what we're going to see is a prophet and his prayer. So let me ask you this question as we start to just think about a prophet and his prayer. And it's, and it's, some, it's semi-rhetorical, but it's a question that should draw out some pretty specific answers. And, and the question is this, have you ever been in one of those situations and the, the situation will be different for you as it is different for you? But if you were to walk up to somebody and go, have you ever been in one of those situations, those specific situations, where life just came crashing down on you, where one minute the world was fine, the next minute all hell's breaking loose, where one minute the world was great, the next minute some piece of news came to you, and that piece of news completely dumped your world on its head. Or the situation, either for a season or for a moment, whether it was for a week or a day, a month or a year, five years or ten years, no matter what that news was, no matter what that situation was, no matter where it was at work or in the home, between husband and wife, wife and kids, neighbor to neighbor, coworker to coworker, the situation was so desperate, the news so surprising, it was left you, it was so beyond you that it just left you floundering. And this could be in the realm of physical things, the realm of spiritual things, where literally the weight of whatever came to you and hit you was just so crushing. And just as you think in your mind of like a grape, as you put a grape in the wine press and that wine press just crushes and presses on that grape and the only thing that that grape knows to do is just to give forth its juice. In life, the situation of life, the news of life, that crushing, distressing, anguishing news comes to you and it presses on you and it just crushes and grinds you. And in that moment, the only thing you know to do is just eke out a prayer. Just as that grape in the midst of the crushing gives forth its juice, You, in this situation, physical or spiritual, no matter what it was, when it pressed in on you, the only thing you knew to do, maybe, maybe you couldn't even eke out a prayer. Maybe it just drove you to the knees and you're just standing there going, God, where are you? Like, how is this part of your plan? 
See, in these dark and pressing times, most often the only thing that ekes out of us is prayer. And when we look at Jonah chapter 2, this is exactly what's going on. When you stand back and you look at Jonah 1, 2, 3, and 4, all of it is story, but there's just this unique little prayer that just comes to us in Jonah chapter 2. And this prayer is Jonah's response to the distress, to the despair, to the abandonment that he feels as the sailors pick him up, hurl him over the edge of the, over the ship, he hits the water and he starts sinking and he goes down into this downward descent. And as the situation of life is crushing in on him and pressing in on him, the only thing he knows to do is just offer up a prayer. And we're going to see Jonah teach us some lessons. As he was fleeing from God, the storm was terrorizing him. We're going to see the hound of heaven is on Jonah's scent, and as Jonah splashes into the water, he's going to be keenly feeling something. The first part of Jonah's prayer, when we look at verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and the first part of 6, we're going to see that the imagery that he is using, the language that he is using, the images that are being conjured up in his mind, the word pictures that he's painting with his words, are this image of, God, where are you? I'm in despair, I'm in distress. I feel abandoned. God, you are far from me. God, where are you at in the midst of this? So the point of this morning as we look at Jonah chapter 2 is we're going to see that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's going to offer up this truth in verse 9. But this truth that he offers up in verse 9 is the point of Jonah chapter 2. We're going to see that on the backside that Jonah is going to come out of this situation. And what he's going to do is lift up his hands and he's going to give us this glorious truth. Yes, in the midst of all this distress, in the midst of all this despair, in the midst of what I felt was abandonment, God, you came, you showed up, you rescued, you saved. And as God stepped into that moment, Jonah steps out on the backside of this season of life, this situation, this episode, and goes, I know this one thing to be true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So as we look at our verses this morning... 1, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to see our text divided into these two subpoints. We're going to see that salvation belongs to the Lord, yes, and what we're going to do is see salvation, this truth that salvation belongs to the Lord, play itself out in these two ways. We're going to see Jonah's watery descent, starting in verse 17 and working down to the first part of Jonah, or working down to the first part of uh, chapter 6 there. We're going to see that Jonah is going to go in this watery descent, down, 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 down. And then picking up in the last part of verse 6, through the end of the chapter, verse 10, we're going to see that God graciously steps in, intervenes, and rescues his prophet. So we're going to read our text, we're going to pray, then we'll turn our attention to these two points of Jonah's watery descent and God's gracious rescue. So read along with me, whether it's in your phone, iPad, if you have a Bible, Turn to Jonah 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback one around you somewhere. We're going to read this text and pray. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, 
into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Let's pray. God, this is truth. You are the author of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It begins with you and it ends with you. And in this, there is great hope. Our confession is we are poor souls and we stand in need of divine grace. We are heartless and dull, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We cast ourselves on your infinite grace and goodness, hoping for no happiness but that which we find in you. I pray that you would come and dwell with us in this place. Make your way of salvation known to us this morning through the example of Jonah. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and that you would make these words come alive, that we would not merely be hearers of the word only, but that we would be doers as well. Holy Spirit, demonstrate your power through the preaching of this word. And would you come and plant these truths deep in our hearts so that we may be changed, so that we may magnify Christ this week. Would you come and strip down walls in our lives, areas where sin is prevalent, areas where we are setting up walls that are prohibiting us from moving forward on mission, joining God on mission, taking the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners to our city, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family. Holy Spirit, demonstrate the power. Do what you love to do best. You delight and you glory in magnifying the Father and magnifying the Son. So would you come and do that very thing today? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we turn to Jonah chapter 2, there are some good things that we need to know. As we are to be students of the scriptures, one thing is that what we need to know is that Jonah chapter 2 is just a little bit different, right? So when you're looking at Jonah chapter 2, as it stands in these four chapters, we need to see that one, Jonah is a thanksgiving psalm. And what that simply means is this, when we come to reading Jonah chapter 2, we just need to recognize that we need to read Jonah chapter 2 just a little bit differently than we would read chapter 1, 3, and 4. Chapter 1, 3, and 4 is story. They're just telling a story. Hey, these events happened. This is what was going on. Jonah went here. Jonah said this. God was doing this. The sailors were doing this. The Ninevites are doing this. And we can read that in a narrative fashion, reading, learning, and then applying. But when we get to Jonah chapter 2, what we just need to understand 
is that this is written as poetry. And when Hebrew poetry comes to us in the Old Testament, what we need to understand and learn that there's just some very figurative, very illustrative language that comes to us, and we just need to know that. It doesn't mean that there's anything less true in prose as there is in this poetry, but what that just means is we just need to be good stewards, good understanders of the Word of God, so when we come to it, we can read this and realize, hey, this is poetry. This is written a little bit differently. The way that the author decided to deliver this, this information to us is done in a very psalm-like way, in a very poetry-like way. Now, the beauty of this is when you're reading through and you start in Jonah chapter 1 as you're working your way to the end of Jonah chapter 4, we left off Jonah back in verse 15 and 16 with this, right? The sailors pick up Jonah, and what do they do? They toss him over the sea, toss him over the side of the ship into the sea. And what happens is the point of the narrative up to Jonah chapter 2 is it's clipping along at a decent little pace, Jonah's here. You're supposed to go here. God said, go preach. He says, no, I'm going to get up and go in the other way. And then there's just sort of this quick-paced narrative that's trucking you through Jonah chapter 1. But when you get to this psalm, to this poetry, what happens is the narrative just, boom, just slows way down. And what the narrator of Jonah's doing is mimicking for us through this genre of poetry what, is, what was going on literally in Jonah's life. What's happened? Jonah's on the run. He's trucking through Jonah chapter 1. He's running from God. He's running from God, running from God. Then all of a sudden, the sailors pick him up, throw him over the sea, and as soon as he hits the water, you can just sort of sense that he's just sort of whoo, bogging down and slowing down. The language here is mimicking exactly what is going on in Jonah's life. It's, it's like you can imagine yourself running. If you're ever as a little kid, I, I remember doing this um, hot summer day. You want to go dive into the pool as soon as you can. So you take off running, you're running, your arms are pumping, your legs are churning, and once you jump into the pool, you can still pump your arms just as fast as you were when you're on dry land, you can still churn your legs just as fast as you were on dry land, but because you're in the water, you're moving at like inches forward when you're traveling like feet forward at that same pace, and that's like exactly what's going on here. We're meant to see that something is different. Jonah is experiencing something different. Just as the way that you get thrown in the water and things slow down, we're meant to sort of contemplate what's happening. Jonah is experiencing this exact same thing here when we come to Jonah chapter 2. So when we get to Jonah chapter 2, what we need to understand too is this. That what we're reading here is basically a flashback episode. So think about you watching your favorite sitcom. When there's story, 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 then all of a sudden there comes a little a portion or section of your sitcom where the person, the narrator, is telling a story, flashes back, and then what we're getting here is the narrator is actually giving editorial comment on what was exactly going on in his life. And that's really what Jonah chapter 2 is. Because what wasn't happening is this. Jonah didn't say, hey, sailors, the storm won't stop until you throw me over sea. And the sailors are like, okay, throws him over sea. Jonah gets in over the side of the ship, lands in the sea, fish comes, swallows him, and Jonah's like, all right, now if there was ever a perfect time in the world to write a Thanksgiving psalm, it's now. Like Jonah didn't reach into his pocket, pull out his, his fountain pen, lick the nib, open up his moleskin, and be like, all right, Lord, I called to you out of my distress, and he answered me. Lord, you cast me in the... This wasn't what was going on in the moment. This is more flashback episode where Jonah's telling his story, and he's like, hey, I'm going to give some editorial comment along the way, as I was, am I going to teach you what was going on in my life in this moment of distress and this despair and this anguish? So when we look at that first half, 
when we see Jonah's watery descent, when we start in verse 17 and work through that first part of 6a, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see that the narrator gives us the location and the action of Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he's praying, and we see this in verse 17. Jonah goes over the sea, side of the ship, hits the sea, and so for the sailor's part, the best thing that they know is like, listen, this guy's toast. The sailors never pop back up on the scene again, and their mind is, all I know is Jonah said, if you want this sea to stop its raging, toss me into the sea. They try not to do it. Eventually, they do do it, and then boom, the sailors are gone and out of there. But the narrative continues on, and it teaches us that when Jonah hits the water, God is in the midst of this. He is still sovereignly working through everything that's going on in this. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So Jonah's in the sea now. This is his location. Well, what was he doing in the sea? Well, when he was in the sea inside the belly of the fish, he was there three days. He was there three nights. And in the midst of this situation, as Jonah's floundering in the sea... The narrator gives this in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Jonah was praying to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. God is sovereignly still working all things according to plan. He's appointing a fish who is, as he's exercising his sovereignty as being the Lord of the sea. And at the end of chapter 2, we're going to see that he's exercising his sovereignty over dry land as he commands the fish to vomit out Jonah onto dry land. And it's playing perfectly into Jonah's confession from last week. The sailors said, hey, who is your God? Who are you worshiping? Who are you giving your life to? And Jonah says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who rules and reigns over dry land and sea. And the narrator goes, hey, perfect case in point. He's working and orchestrating in the life of Jonah, this fish who is in the sea, who's going to eventually sovereignly come and take him to dry land. So once the narrator gets that out of the way, then we turn to this psalm. And if you'll notice there, as you were listening, as I was reading it to you, there is a lot of language devoted to emphasizing Jonah's watery descent. Starts in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, in the first part of verse 6. The narrator wants you to read this and come away with this idea. Listen, things were bleak for Jonah. Like, this wasn't a good situation, right? He was hanging out in Israel. God said, go. Jonah gets up and takes off. And it's not too far long. The next thing you know, he's floundering in the midst of the ocean, sinking, going down. He's in a distressing situation. He's feeling anguish. Like things were just hunky-dory back in chapter 1. Now he is, here he is in a death spiral, heading down, 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 down. And as we read this, what we're meant to see is this. That Jonah's calling out to the Lord out of his distress. Jonah's in the belly of Sheol and he's crying out. And what he gives us here in verse 2 is this. This editorial comment of, listen, I'm thankful for what God did. Because we know that Jonah has been saved. He's come out on the backside of it. That's why we have this psalm. So he starts off with this psalm and is like, listen, let me give you a little heads up. In the midst of this really bad, awful situation that I was in, God came and did an awesome, miraculous thing. He saved me. Now let me show you how awful it was. And then he goes on to verse 3. So what we see is Jonah's descent is portrayed. So as I said, the language of this poetry is mimicking for us what is going on actually in Jonah's life. So Jonah's been tossed over the edge of the ship. 
He's hit the water, and you can see and sort of get this, this sense and this feel of what's going on in Jonah's life in verse 3. He says, God, you're the one who cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, as the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. So you can almost get the sense that this verse 3 is Jonah's just initially hit the water. Even though Jonah said, sailors, you need to cast me into the sea, even though the sailors are the ones who actually cast him into the sea, what does Jonah tell us in verse 3? God, you are the one who cast me into the deep. Jonah's connecting some dots, and he's starting to see that God's sovereign arm is reaching out, and God was working through the events of what Jonah was saying to the sailors and what the sailors did to him, that God was in the midst of this all. So as he was cast into the deep, into the heart of the sea, now it's like he's starting to go down a little bit. The flood surrounded me. He's he's no longer just treading the surface, right? This is a great tempest. The wind and the sea are raging. A human being just doesn't float along like a bobber in the midst of a situation like this. The flood starts to go over him. The waves and the billows are starting to pass over him. Jonah's starting to realize, like, this is not such a good situation that I'm in. And in verse 4, we see that Jonah draws this conclusion, that I've been driven from the Lord's sight. And he says that. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And the language, the original language here, that second part of verse 4, should not so much be a statement of, yet I shall again look upon your temple, but it's really more in the form of a question. So Jonah says, I am in the sea now. This is a bad deal. This is not a good place for me to be. I'm feeling the sense that I have been abandoned by God. I am driven away from your sight, O Lord my God. Shall I again look upon your holy temple? Will I be able to? Is God going to show up in the midst of this situation? This is his plight. He's feeling keenly. I am out here in the midst of the Mediterranean in a gigantic tempest, and God feels like he is on the opposite side of the world. Then Jonah continues with language in verse chapter 5 where we see that Jonah's descent worsens. So no longer is he just cast into the deep, no longer is he just into the heart of the seas, no longer is the flood just surrounding him and the waves and the billows passing over him, but now Jonah, it's like he's going down, he's underwater and he's just sinking and he's sinking and he's sinking. And what he says is, the waters have closed in over me to take away my life. This flood is going to get me. There's no hope for me in this situation. The deep truly has surrounded me. Seaweed or weeds are wrapped about my head. I am going down so low that I'm going down to the very roots of the mountains. As we see the mountains on dry land, we know that these things just plunge deep into the earth. And there's this deepness to this language that Jonah is saying, as he says, I'm going down, this is a point of no return. Like this isn't a place where, you know, I'm just sort of flopping around in the shallows on the edge of the beach. This is out in the deeps. It's as if I'm drifting down to the pit, down to the shield. I went down to the land whose bars closed in upon me forever. We're meant to see that Jonah's situation was very serious. And here the psalm, Jonah's psalm, appropriately reflects that seriousness. The language of the psalm provides vivid language to depict the physical sensation of drowning. There's lack of air. The water's closed in over me. There's water everywhere. The deep surrounded me. And there's entrapment. Weeds, seaweed is wrapped about my head. 
when we get to that point at the end of verse 5 and then look onto that first part of verse 6, we see that Jonah has descended to that point of death. Jonah's downward descent to the land of the dead is complete. And at this moment, he's experiencing despair of the darkest nature. Like if we could somehow sort of like matrix into this point right here, I don't know if we'd want to be. Like, right, because Jonah's under the sea. But if we could somehow, like, matrix into that moment and be like, do an on-the-street interview with Jonah. Jonah, you're in the depths of the sea and the wind and the waves are over you. How do you feel in this situation? You stick the mic in his mouth. What he's not going to be is like, man, this is great. Like, I just really hoped I would end up here at some point in my life. Being in the depths of the sea, right on the brink of death, I mean, I just really hoped that this would be where I would... I would, I, my life would end up eventually at some point in time. Like, that's, that's not what's going on here. The narrator is continually using the same language over and over again, so we as the reader will come away going, man, Jonah is in a place of abandonment. He's experiencing a despair, a distress, an abandonment of the darkest nature. He is in the lowest part of the sea, literally on the brink of death. To be at the root of the mountains, which is language there in verse Five and six. To go down to the land whose bars closed in upon him is vivid imagery for death. So just think in your, in, in, in your mind here. You've seen this on TV, movies, shows, whatever it is, but the guy who's arrested goes to jail, thrown into the jail cell. And what happens with the, the prison bar doors? They just make that awful clanking sound and just sort of shut. And it's sort of this audio visual sensation of like, man, like that dude's not getting out of that jail cell. It's not like he's being enclosed inside his jail ship, inside his jail cell with just some sort of like sheet on his door, this sort of wimpy form of protection. The clanking of the bars and that loud metal on metal is meant for us to see and hear in those movies, in those shows, like, listen, this guy is stuck in this place. He is not exiting the jail cell. And for the Hebrew, that language was true when you talked about the world of death. When Jonah says, I was going down and the bars of the land, bars of the underworld, the bars of the death are closing upon me forever, what he is experiencing in his mind when he's in the depths of despair, distress, and abandonment is, like, I'm about to pass into the place where there is no return. Like, I should not be coming back from this experience. And so when we see things like this in the scripture, this very aquatic language, it's used to convey feelings of despair, distress. And the watery image of, I'm in the belly of Sheol, I'm in the waters, I'm I'm in the deeps, I'm in the sea, I'm going down to the pit. This is all language that the Hebrew would have used to be like, listen, this guy's situation is a no-go. Like, Jonah was alive, check it off, Jonah's dead. No point, point of no return. He is not going to be joining us again. And what we see, starting all the way back in Jonah chapter 1 to this point, is that there has been a constant downward spiral in Jonah's life. And it started all the way back in verse 3. The moment that God said, I want you to arise, go, and call out against Nineveh, and Jonah said, I'm going to arise, go, and flee to Tarshish, the language that we see from Jonah 1 all the way to Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, that first part of verse 6 is this. He is on a death spiral. And that language of going down just keeps popping up over and over. 
Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the inner part of the ship. He laid his head down to sleep. He went down into the sea. He went down into the belly of the fish. He went down into the belly of death. And this is it for Jonah. Death is here. It's his lot in his life. Just accept it, bro. That's what's coming to you. But when we turn our attention to that second part of verse 6, what we see is this is actually not the end of Jonah's life. A lot of distress, a lot of despair, and a lot of abandonment language was coming to us through this psalm. And in the midst of this, what we're supposed to do is read this and come away with sort of a weight, empathizing with Jonah. I'm like, yeah, I've been there, man. Like, I've traveled this road before. And in the midst of great despair, in the midst of great distress, in the midst of great abandonment, whatever those situations were in your life, whether it was physical or spiritual, all it took was a singular, small, tiny ray of hope to pierce that dark night of the soul. And as that singular little ray of hope pierced the dark night of the soul, it was like the sun was on fire in your room. Because in the midst of darkness, all it takes is one little light to make it look as if the room is on fire. And when we read Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, it smacks of something very much like Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul uses in this language. Remember in your mind Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing this in regard to salvation. He's like, listen, it was bleak for you, man. Like, you were without hope. You were without God. You were dead. You were a transgressor. You were a child of wrath. You were following the passions of the flesh, and it was going to go very bad for you if you were to die and meet God in this state. But what? Two words. But God intervened and brought salvation. I mean, he, Paul waxes long for four, three verses going, man, this is how awful the situation is. And then he just goes, but God did something about it. And you go, Yes. Man, I'm glad God did something about it. And that's the way we're supposed to feel when we come to Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, when it's like, man, Jonah, this is bad, dude. And then when we get to that second part of verse 6 where he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. We're meant to go, man, yes. Like, I need God to intervene in my moments of life when things are awful. And Jonah's going to teach us that God is exactly the God who does that, and he is the only God who can do that. Because when you read verse 7 and you work through this, because what Jonah's going to do is just basically come back and repeat himself. He's like, listen, you want the nutshell of what just happened in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6? It's this. My life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord. I prayed to him, and he saved me. And then in the midst of this psalm, what he does is almost like he hits pause, in telling his story, this flashback episode, he steps back and gives an editorial comment that goes like this, and it's verses 8 and 9. He says, listen, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's like, okay, like what's that about? Like you're just on this downward death spiral descent distress, despair, and abandonment. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about vain idols? Like, what's that about? And Jonah's teaching us a lesson here. This is editorial comment on this flashback episode. What he's teaching us is this. Idols are empty things. 
Those who cling to worthless idols will abandon their loyalty to them in a moment like this. Because what would happen, just imagine for a moment in, in, in imagination here, if instead of Jonah being tossed over the sea, it was one of the sailors who back in verse 5 of chapter 1 were calling out to gods who were not the Lord God. Jonah's teaching us is that the people who say, I am building up my life around everything except for the Lord God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the person who would have found themselves in this situation calling out to everybody and calling out to everything, but the Lord God would change their mind in this moment because basically they're calling out to nothing. They were saying, hey, you false God, hey, you false idea, hey, you false thing that is in my life, I need you to save me now. And the echo, the answer that would come back to him in this moment would be this, nothing. Because it wasn't the Lord God. These people were clinging to things that could not save them. And what Jonah says, listen, I have learned a lesson here. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah, on the other hand, clings to the promise-keeping God. Jonah has tasted and seen that salvation truly does belong to his God. And he has figuratively been raised up to life. The Lord saved him as an, as an expression of gratitude. He promises to offer sacrifices and fulfill his vows to the Lord. Boom, end of psalm. We kick back in the narrative, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. God says, okay, fish, mission accomplished. Spit Jonah out in the dry land. Then, whoop, it's like the kid in the pool, right? This whole time he's been trucking along ah, real hard, moving about an inch at a time forward. Then he reaches the end of the pool, hops up, Takes off trucking, boom, the narrative takes off, and here we go back into Jonah 3 and chap- Jonah chapter 4, right straight on. We've slowed down for a bit. We've learned this lesson. Salvation truly does belong to God. Jonah experienced this, this salvation in the midst of distress, despair, and abandonment, and Jonah is teaching us a lesson. So the question then becomes, okay, so how does this, how does a random Hebrew poem in the midst of a book about a prophet and a fish, apply to us today. So as we mentioned earlier, Jonah chapter 2, it's a snapshot of Jonah's prayer life, right? It was an intimate look at Jonah in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his abandonment, crying out to God. And as I challenged you with that question earlier, most of us have experienced something like this. I mean, I can rem- keenly remember back in about 2008, I had a moment where it was a more a spiritual crisis for me, less physical, more spiritual, to where there was a season of life, a couple of months of my life, where it was just like, God, like, where are you in the midst of this? And it wasn't just sort of like a passing fancy in my mind. It wasn't just this, this idea of, yeah, man, I guess this thing is just sort of on my mind, and oh, what's that? A movie's on, and I go over here. I mean, this was a dark night of the soul, spiritually speaking, for me where that situation was just pressing in on my heart and to the point where there was a lot of late night cryings out to God. Like me literally laying on the floor of my living room going, God, like, where, like I am lost in this. Where are you in the midst of this? I'm praying and my prayers are going like 10 feet up and like ricocheting right back down on me. And it wasn't just an immediate, hey God, this is really a horribly distressing situation. Will you please help me? And then like a second later, God's like, yeah, I'll help you. And he stepped in. There was a lot of months of just me crying out to God. 
But as I stepped out of the backside of that dark night of the soul, I can come along with Jonah and say, man, salvation does belong to the Lord. The Lord intervened in that moment. The Lord heard my prayers. And as life, spiritually speaking, was just crushing in upon my soul, it drove me to my knees to literally lay on the floor of my living room where I was just praying out to, and crying out to God saying, God, I need you to intervene. Nothing else will satisfy in this moment. And it came true. God stepped in. God intervened. Jonah chapter 2 is helpful for us in this sense in at least two ways. Before any one of us became a Christian, before any of us experienced salvation in in a saving way, like in the sense of I'm not a Christian, now I am a Christian. I once was apart from God, now I've been adopted into the family of God. In terms of salvation, as in forgiveness of sin salvation, before anyone becomes a Christian, to say that their life was marked by distress, despair, and abandonment isn't too far of a stretch. Now, it's more evident in some people's lives and less evident in others, but the totality of Scripture adds up and teaches us this thing. When you are living a Christ-less life in terms of salvation, whether it is evident or not evident in your life, the common theme that threads its way through your life is this, that you in striving on your own will constantly be the owner of distress, despair, and abandonment. Whether it is outwardly or inwardly, a Christless life truly is without hope and without God. So in this situation, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah teaches us that we can have hope. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. So in a sense, our prophet Jonah experienced a figurative death and a figurative resurrection. Jonah was dying. He's down into a watery grave. He's down to the point where he says, like figuratively, I was in that place where the bars of the underworld were closing in over me. But what happens in the last part of verse 6? But God intervened and raised me up, lifted me up, saved me. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And what we're meant to see is that there's this figurative language of Jonah being in the belly of the fish three days and three nights is painting this picture for us of Jonah having a death-like and a resurrection-like experience. But we have a better prophet who comes on the scene better than Jonah who literally did experience death. He literally did resurrect from the dead. See, Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish. Jesus was entombed in the belly of the earth. And when you jump into the New Testament, when you go to Matthew chapter 12... Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and he grabs that language and applies it directly to himself. Jonah's death and Jonah's resurrection still pointed outside of himself. He still needed the Lord of salvation to come and save him in the midst of distress, despair, and abandonment. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he points to himself as the Lord of salvation wrapped in flesh, who came to save people in distress, despair, and abandonment. Jesus is the greater prophet, and because Jesus is the greater prophet, he is our hope of salvation in this moment. 
See, the best that Jonah could do is Jonah was in this situation because he blew it, right? Jonah experienced this death-like situation and this resurrection-like situation because of his own sin. But Jesus stepped into this situation and experienced death really and experienced resurrection really not because of his own sin but because of your sin and because of my sin. And so our hope in this situation of I am living a life of distress, despair, and misery is I don't have to look to someone who says, hey, don't look at me, look somewhere else. But you have Jesus who stepped on the scene and says, listen, just like Jonah, I am the better. You can look to me. I'm not going to point you to somewhere else. I'm going to tell you, look at me. I have accomplished something for you on the cross. Your life doesn't have to have the storyline of distress, despair, and abandonment in terms of how you relate to God. You can actually have communion with God. That doesn't mean that you're not going to experience a distress, despair, and abandonment just in life situations, but in terms of salvation, your life does not have to be one marked as, I do not know God. You can know God because of Christ, the greater Jonah. And the other way I think this can apply to us in the way that seeing Jonah in this situation that helps us it would be more for those of us in here who are believers. And this goes more back to that illustration that I pulled from at the beginning. Right? I mean, it, I mean like it's not hard for me right now, if I wanted to do it, to start pointing out in people's lives going, man, I, I know there's something going on in your life. Like you're in a really stressful situation. There's despair going on in your life right now. Like God seems like he's a light year away from you right now. So the question is, how does Jonah 2 apply to you now? We're not talking in terms of salvation, but we're just talking about, listen, I just received some news. The situation between me and my wife, me and my husband, me and my children, me and my coworker, me and my boss, it's so pressing in on me it's so crushing in on me right now. What in the world is my hope? Because if God really loved me, then he would not be letting this happen. Like, those are the kind of thoughts we drift to. But Jonah 2 steps in on the scene, and it says that's exactly the wrong way to think. See, there's a greater prophet who experienced distress, despair, and abandonment. To the degree that you could never fathom or imagine. And it's the prophet Jesus Christ when he was pinned on the cross and he was hanging there. And in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this as he's hanging on the cross and he's about to die. Mark says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the moment that you're in right now, as you're traveling life with the distress, despair, and abandonment, you're not the one blazing this trail. Somebody has blazed this trail before you, and his name is Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah. He is the one who truly did experience total and complete, unadulterated abandonment from God in that moment of his death on the cross. See, smart Bible keep people call this cry when God in flesh is pinned to the cross 
And he's crying out, my God, my God, God, why have you forsaken me in this moment? Smart Bible people say that's called the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. When Christ, the Son of God, cloaked in flesh, is hanging on the cross, it wasn't just some feeling of despair, it was actual full and complete abandonment from God. In that moment, the perfect relationship within the Trinity for that moment was broken, and the Father turns his face away from the Son, and it was enough for God, the Son, cloaked in flesh, to cry out, God, why have you abandoned me? And it wasn't because of something he had done. He's not like Jonah in this instance. He's not experiencing abandonment because he had sinned. He's experiencing abandonment because you sinned and because I sinned. In that moment, the the Trinity was, was split. The perfect community, the perfect fellowship, the perfect love, the perfect harmony between the members of the Godhead was broken, a harmony that existed for all eternity past. Jesus Christ underwent distress, despair, and abandonment of his own accord, not for his own sins and rebellion like Jonah. He died for the sake of sinful creatures who he came to redeem. Jesus bore God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, and this meant being utterly forsaken by God. For Jesus, this meant death. Yet he walked out the other side of abandonment, being fully vindicated, and the evidence of his full vindication was what? The resurrection. The exact thing that Jonah pointed forward to. In Christ's suffering, you and I find consolation for our moments of distress, despair, and abandonment. I mean, haven't you been here? I mean, surely you have. Life just comes, and I mean, it's just an uppercut sucker punch right to the gut. And you're just doubled over like, what in the world just happened? Whether it's stress in your marriage, children aren't obeying you, Perhaps it's just the mind-numbing banality of work, the nowhereness of, man, I'm just doing the exact same thing over and over again, and I feel despair. Or maybe it's a series of things that you can't even put your finger on, but in all things, there's just this fog of depression, and it stirs up feelings of anguish towards God and a sense of abandonment. Your hope in this situation is this, that Christ Jesus is your precedent. He is your hope. He has been through this before you. And during times of distress and during times of despair and abandonment, we can find consolation in the Messiah who has come and tread this ground before us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God of salvation, that salvation truly does belong to the Lord. So God, I pray that for those of us, brothers and sisters in this room, whether it's physical, spiritual, whatever it may be, that as we just keenly are feeling in this moment abandonment, distress, or despair, that we could look and go, man, I see how Jonah reacted to this in Jonah chapter 2, and he pointed to somewhere else, but man, I've got something greater. He pointed to the greater prophet, Jesus, and God, we can relish in that. God, I pray that you would take these words, Holy Spirit, you would plant them, and that you would use them to encourage us toward being lovers of our people, of this city, towards family, 
towards community, towards neighbors. God, may the things that I misspoke or the things that I didn't speak, would they all fall away? And Holy Spirit, would you do, as I prayed earlier, the very thing you love to do, which is magnify the Son, magnify the Father. Do this now and propel us this week out forward, taking the name of Jesus Christ to this city. In Jesus' name I pray.